Our sermon outline this morning, pages 10 and 11 of our bulletin. And we come again to the seventh commandment, which we looked at first last week. And we take just a moment to review what we're in the midst of here is our study of the Ten Commandments. We've said that there's a common thread that runs through all of them. It's a call to submission. It's a call to not do what we are inclined to do on our own. It's a call to listen to what God says and subordinate ourselves to that on a whole host of subjects. And last week in the first sermon on the Seventh Commandment, we likened it to the parents seeking to teach their children that the stove is hot. And the little child wants to see for itself. It's attracted one way or another by maybe the prohibition, but he wants to touch the stove. And if we go ahead and do so, we find there are grave consequences. So we are grateful for the warnings that our parents give us. On the one hand, initially it seems limiting, that we can't do what we want to do in all things. But on the other hand, we see that it is very helpful and sustaining and preventing and guiding and protecting us from serious injury. And so the Word of God in, its ten, in the Ten Commandments, which cover all moral questions, now come to us not only as a prohibition, which many people see, the, because the wording is in the negative, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, in many cases, people have commonly looked at the Ten Commandments as a series of no's. But the Scriptures say in both the Old and New Testament that the Word of God, the law of God, is life-giving. It condemns us and shows us our sin, but the other side of that is it brings us to, uh, to Him, to him and to be able to see what is really true. So we should very eagerly look to the Word of God and see it as a thankful gift, as a gift that is thankfully received by us from the Lord Himself. So we come now back to this second uh, sermon on adultery, recognizing that it doesn't apply in every case to everyone who's in this room. There are, of course, maybe instances in your life when it does apply, but there may be also instances here today as I speak about the po- positive aspects of this commandment that are not readily ap- applicable to those who are single, to those who, are, who are, n- are not married and may not be married. So we recognize that there is that limitation on the way in. To summarize again, last week we said adultery is sex with someone who's not your spouse. Sex with someone who is someone else's spouse, on the one hand, the act. And secondly, it is the lusting after someone. The initial phase, as we saw in Matthew 5, not the completion of the act, not the carrying out of it, but just the inclination itself, Jesus warns against and says, that's adultery. Now, this should take us back in our minds all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is the same sort of thing that got Adam and Eve in trouble. The first thing they did when they were told that they could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was admire its fruit and lust after it. How long it took, we don't know, but for a period of time passed between the time they saw the fruit and the time they ate it. Both are transgressions, but Jesus places the most serious part of it at the beginning 
not the consummation of the eating, but the beginning, he says, even if you look lustfully after a woman, you don't have to make any plans. You don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. Just the initial step is the, is, is the breaking of the commandment and leads often to much worse things. So that's last week, and that's the prohibition. What about the positive side? Each of these commandments has a positive side. Now shall not lie also has the positive side of the blessings of truth, and we'll see that in a week or two. As I say in the outline, the opposite of the prohibition in the seventh commandment is you may have great sexual experiences within limits. Some otherwise excellent Christian theologians did not get this. And two of them, not to pick on them this morning, but both Augustine and Tertullian saw the abuse of sexual relations and sexual interactions, and they came out very strongly against it in almost every circumstance. They almost began to say that sex was a dirty and forbidden thing in all circumstances. They stopped short of that, but they certainly left the impression, one that's gathered down through the ages, that sex relations within marriage are not entirely welcome. That's not what the Bible says, and we'll look at that in a few minutes. We also have the problem of our own culture. Our own culture teaches us that maximum pleasure is the goal of sex. That's why we do this, for our own good, for our own benefit, for our own pleasure. This is the purpose of it. After all, if there's no God and we don't believe what he says about it, then this is all there is about to do, to do with the subject. But the Bible teaches that it is a parable of the gospel and that it has many positive purposes. Many positive purposes. Augustine and Tertullian got pretty close to saying the only positive purpose of sex and marriage is procreation. We don't believe that's what the Bible teaches, and we think that that's why we can't just trust our fathers in the faith uh, without some revision. I want to talk, first of all, about the glory of sex. It is not just permitted, it is commanded. Now, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 7, where it says that the husband and the wife are to engage in sexual relations unless they both agree that there is to be some kind of period of prayer and spiritual preparation or separation. It is indeed the duty of the husband to care for the wife physically. It is the duty of the wife to care for the husband physically. Here and elsewhere, and we're going to look at in Proverbs chapter 5, erotic is, language is used in the Scriptures, and, and God does seem to command it, in marriage, sexual delight is directed and designed. It's part of what he intends for the blessing of his people. If we turn now to Proverbs chapter 5, we get one illustration of this, and we turn there now in our Old Testament to verse 15. Proverbs 5, verse 15, the word of the Lord. Drink the water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets and your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts always satisfy you, and may you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline and led astray by his own great folly. 
So as it says in verse 18, it is a joy and a delight. It is a blessing. It is encouraged, but it is never, verse 17, to be shared with strangers. It is not something that is encouraged. Verse 20, we should not be captivated by the adulteress and embrace the bosom of another man's wife. It's never to be shared with strangers. The picture seems to be this, and this is Romans 7 summarized, verses 1 through 6. Just as a woman puts herself in her husband's arms and fruit is born into the world through her body, so a Christian, as a Christian, we should put ourselves in Jesus' arms and good things will come into the world through us. We embrace one another within the sexual act as a picture of, of the gospel blessing. So the application. Within marriage, sex is not just about procreation or about controlling urges or a necessary evil. It is a parable of the gospel. It is a picture of what it means to be utterly accepted in spite of your sin, to be utterly loved by someone who is greatest of all. Sexual relations are a foretaste and an illustration of present and future delight and rejoicing. They are good. They are fine. And they are picturesque. They depict for us the loving acceptance of Christ for his church and the loving embrace of God and his people. It's not just about pleasure. It's not just about procreation. It's not just about controlling one's natural desires. It is about the gospel. And the husband and wife, as they come together, they illustrate it. In the imagery describing Christ and the church, we are dealing, says C.S. Lewis, with male and female, not merely as facts of nature, but as living and awesome shadows of realities, utterly beyond our control and largely beyond our knowledge. There's something mystical and wonderful about the sexual relation between a husband and wife that is very positive, very renewing, very upbuilding, very edifying. Can it be abused? Yes. Yes, it can, and many have, sub have suffered as a result. I turn you now to the cover of the bulletin and a little quote by Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and theologian and Christian, who said this, maybe to somebody who came to him and said, My, even sex is unsatisfying. He said, it's good to be worried and frustrated with the fruitless search for the good life so that one can reach out one's arms instead to the Redeemer. No sexual relationship is entirely satisfying or perfect. None. We are all sinners, and sex itself is tainted by that fact. However, we can find some good in it, and the Lord does, of course, as I said, do so and direct us in, these, in this direction. Aren't sexual relations, as I say, in, in, under the purpose of sex, the source of all kinds of abuse and heartache? Yes. It has been abused. It can be abused. But the Bible warns of these abuses and tells us to be careful about them. Two places. First of all, Hebrews 13. I have the words here for you. Marriage should be honored by all, both the married and the unmarried, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, of course, the marriage bed is not kept pure when someone seeks another partner. And the marriage bed also is not kept pure when one of the partners abuses the other, physically, emotionally, mentally, forcefully, whatever. 
The Bible says, keep the marriage bed pure. And by that purity and holiness, it means a concern for the other, not a demand of my needs and my desires and my momentary inclinations, but always a respect for the other party. Jesus never forces himself on his church, and neither should we force ourselves on one another. First Thessalonians 4, I think, is even clearer. Each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen. They are given over to these things. And while it's okay to have sexual relations within the marriage bond, lustful passion ought not to be the driving force. The driving force is the picture of the gospel and the concern for one another not the satisfying of my appetites and inclinations. Each of you should learn to control his own body, even within marriage, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Sex is not the grand problem solver that it is reputed to be. We were told many times in many media outlets and movies and all that if one just has an active and congenial sexual partner, one will have happiness untold isn't true. Sex only works positively between one man and one woman in a permanent, exclusive covenant called marriage. That's how it's designed. And that's the only way it can work. Uh, mankind is seeking, in our generation and others, a million variations of this. If they could possibly find another way, we would. But there isn't another way. It's only to be used positively and helpfully within the context of a permanent exclusive commitment structure, covenant. It is God's way for a person to communicate to one another, saying, along with the gospel, I belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to you. It's a picture of that commitment which comes from the heart. It is not in and of itself the goal. It is, it is to lead us in the direction of deeper and spiritual relations between husband and wife. For just as you cannot have deep intimacy with God without total commitment to him, so also intimacy with another person arises from total commitment to them, not just physical oneness. Intimacy is not gained simply by the sexual act. Intimacy is gained on many levels by the tenderness and kindness of God's people coming together. But other people say, well, but sex having with only, only having sex with someone to whom you are married is unnatural and repressive, uh, isn't it? Where's the variety, uh, the spice of life, and where's the diversity in that? Oh, this is a very attractive, very, very often used weapon of the devil. We are told that we have natural desires that need to be satisfied. And who's to say that it should only be with one person. Who's to say that we can't do as we please? Answer, God. Don't touch the stove. Sex has a way of being a corrosively destructive thing, as we'll see in a moment. Well, but I like, what about variety being the spice of life? I mean, I just have this one partner. Maybe it would be good for me to have others. Yes, says the devil, go ahead. Many, often. But the Bible says that on the one hand, while we have strong sexual desires, we also have a strong desire for complete commitment. 
The way to keep commitment and desire together without destroying ourselves is through the covenant of marriage. And to use it outside of marriage is to destroy the very thing it was designed to do, build intimacy. And this is the one major act that a person can commit that Jesus said is grounds for divorce because at some very deep level there is betrayal and hurt and brokenness that makes the offended party have the option of having a lawful divorce. This runs very deep. It's not quite the same thing as telling a lie. Lying is not grounds for divorce. Stealing is not grounds for divorce. Adultery is grounds for divorce because it touches something very deep. It touches the, the, the essence of a relationship between a husband and wife that needs to be not broken. And when it is, even in the sexual act itself, which some people will say, oh, that didn't mean anything. Not true. We're not animals. We may act like it sometimes. We are not dogs and, and creatures. So what will happen is that if you, if you try to have sex without intimacy, you'll either be disgusted by yourself and the person with whom you engage, or it will eat you up. It will destroy you corrosively from within. It's serious business. And of course it's, it's serious business, and the devil says so because he attacks us on this very thing. We have one extensive illustration of how this works in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 13. Much too long for me to do anything but summarize with you today. Misspelling there, Amnon and Tamar were related sort of as brother and sister. They had the same father anyway, not the same mother. And Amnon took a fancy to her, and she rebuffed his approach. She said, no, this would be wrong. He pursued her. She said, no, I'm not interested. So he raped her violently and then tried to cover it up and then tried to get Absalom, his brother, to protect him. But ultimately, he was punished for this and his life was taken. Listen to the story of Amnon. It's repeated many, many times, not always ending in death, but it is a reminder of the seriousness of the sexual act. If we are just animals and we're not created in the image of God, then we act like animals and we procreate. We have sex indiscriminately. But we are not animals. We are made in his image, as we see in a moment. Sexual activity creates trenches in our heart for the water of our emotions to flow down. Sex can be addicting, it can be a kind of bondage, it can be an ensnaring thing. So that's why he gave us the gospel. He doesn't want us to be ensnared by lying and cheating and dishonoring our parents and transgressing the Lord's day and coveting other things. And he doesn't want us to be ruined by our inordinate sexual desires outside of marriage. So as Titus writes in Titus 2, the gospel teaches me and you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The purpose of the law of God is to teach us that the stove is hot 
And by avoiding the burn of that contact, we are given life, we are given hope, we are given health and strength and prosperity, and we grow and we do better. But willpower will not free us from sexual temptation and abuse. Only God can do that. Let me suggest two things as we move toward the close to do. First of all, under application, let the Word and Spirit of God come in and sweetly argue with you. You haven't heard many sermons on this subject. You probably should have more. It's actually a subject that's more widely treated in the Scriptures than most ministers have the nerve to bring up. But I'm getting near retirement. <laughs> so I feel free to take on the hard stuff. So let the Word of God and the Spirit of God come in and sweetly argue with you. Say, all right. I've heard what the preacher says, and it is what the Bible says. What am I going to do about it? What is my response going to be? What course and path will I take? Let him teach you a better way than you have heard from other people or from your own inclinations and sinful hearts. Since we come before the Lord openly and unashamedly, so remind yourself of the grace of God so freely and abundantly given and how marvelously accepted you are by the one whose opinion, the only one whose opinion really matters. At the base of the sexual act within marriage is mutual openness and acceptance, an embrace of love that is offered to us through the vessels which God has given to us and through the limits that he has placed upon us. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Don't, don't go out here with any idea that I said that sex is bad and dirty and wrong in all cases. No. For that wouldn't be the biblical message. The biblical message is that within marriage, not, give, not controlled by uncontrollable lust, but within marriage and within limits, it is a beautiful picture of the Christ and his church loving his people. It is a marvelous vessel for acceptance. For while no spouse is perfect, to say the least, there is one who knows me intimately, clearly, and is my helper and guide in life. And then secondly, because God made us his image bearers, our sexuality is greater than a physical act. We were created to be known, and marriage can be the most significant place that this happens. Life is short. We don't know very many people very well. But God has ordained that for those who are given the gift of marriage, there should be one person of the opposite sex who would come together through all of life. And they would be transparent with one another regarding their finances regarding their thoughts, regarding their actions, regarding how they spend their time, their priorities, their dreams, their hopes, their aspirations, and their physical relations. This is a picture of Christ loving his church and accepting his people. This is a people, the picture of the oneness, the spiritual oneness that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ in the marriage bond and also Christ and his church. It's a wonderful thing. That is a glorious gift to us. May the Lord enable us by his strength and power to engage in godly sexual relations within marriage. 
and to have nothing to do with illicit and immoral thoughts and actions regarding the spouse of someone else. Nothing to do with it. There's no good that can come of that. There's nothing possibly positive or prosperous that will result. Everything that comes of such things is broken and it's of the devil. It's, it's destructive and corrosive and distorts our lives. Have nothing to do with it. For your own good, says the Lord. May the Lord deliver us from temptation. And may he deliver us from evil. Even as we keep his word, thou shalt not commit adultery. Let us pray. Okay, okay, Lord, we get it, we got it. You, you, you made the point today and elsewhere in the scriptures. We know you're right, but we ask now for your help. For Lord Jesus, you were like us, tempted in all points and yet without sin, and we pray for your help in living according to your word and clinging to the life that it gives us. Thank you for doing so much for us on the cross and for being our perfect husband as we are your imperfect bride. Use us in our marriage relations, we pray, in a constructive and loving manner so that our relationship may deepen and grow and not be the subject of abuse and coercion and manipulation. Help us, Lord, to live holy lives, to say no to ungodliness and live upright lives in this generation. We know the devil hates this. We know the world opposes it. But we know, you, we know what you want, and we ask now that you'll help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.